I was sitting in the airport with an American from New York, and he asked what we were up to in Paris, and I asked him what he was up to, and he said he was just finishing three months visiting, and that he is retiring there. He's 62, New York City citizen all his life. And he said it was between Florida and Paris. And he's like, and I got memberships to the Modern Art Museum and the New York Ballet Theater. And he's like, and I just can't leave all that and go to Florida. So he said, I'm going to, I'm going to Paris. So I was there for three months looking at places and connecting with the expats there. And he said, you can actually find entire blocks where it's all Americans who have been there for like decades. And he said, a lot of us read A Movable Feast by Hemingway about his time in the 20s, living in Paris, hanging out with other Americans like F. Scott Fitzgerald and their crazy adventures, their wild times. I thought that was interesting to hear an American wanting to go there. I said, why else do you want to go there? He said, just because it just feels more sophisticated. And he's like, consider this. The National Endowment of the Arts in France, when divided per person, comes out to about $63. The National Endowment for the Arts in the United States, when divided among the people, comes out to about 30 cents a person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, that's wild if that's true. It's just a very interesting observation, but France is known for art. That's why I wanted to talk about art tonight, because I got this sort of... Uh, crash course in art over the, that week in France. What does art do to the brain? Well, in general, observing something that you find beautiful elicits feelings similar to that of when you're looking at somebody that you love. And MRI studies confirm this. And certain pleasure centers in the brain are activated and there's increased blood flow to those parts of the brain. One particular area is called the medial orbital frontal cortex. So it's in the front part of the brain and up to 10% more blood flow comes to this part of the brain, which increases, is thought to increase intelligence just by observing beautiful art. It's not the same though, if you don't find the art to be beautiful, similarly to like looking at things that trigger frustration in you, that doesn't necessarily help build health and well-being. So the key here in these studies is that it has to be something that you can appreciate and that elicits positive feelings in you. There is a difference between figurative art and abstract art. So what is figurative art? An image or an object and then the abstract art is less so. It's reducing the creative process down to lines, shapes, colors and light. Why do you think that painters and artists started to move away at some point from figurative art to abstract art? Jackson Pollock is an abstract artist that painted figures and quickly evolved to, to more and more reductionist approaches to his art and it culminated into him putting the canvas on the floor, large canvases, and working around it 360 degrees and flinging paint onto the canvas. And it was about the process of doing that, that, that was also part of the art. And so when he started creating these kind of paintings, he stopped naming them even, and they just became one, two, three, four, and so on. Art is made up of colors, 
visual arts made up of colors and colors have certain meanings but those meanings are a little bit different than words like words tend to have a certain significance even when the context changes but for colors it may have a certain meaning but depending on the shifting context that meaning changes and so the visual artist makes use of that and knows that depending on the beholder or the observer they're going to be able to have different types of interpretations like paintings also served the function that photographs serve today and when that became not as much of a need that probably also influenced that freedom from that okay we don't have to do this anymore we don't have to perfectly capture things anymore we got a, a camera to do that it also coincides with world war one and two so maybe that also ties into this idea that so many things are being destroyed because of war that maybe it's time to break or liberate ourselves from some of these limiting concepts. There is a difference in the way we perceive figurative art and abstract art. When we're looking at abstract art with less form, we tap into more of the imaginative, imagination centers in the brain. So that's why if you're looking at a painting by Monet, an impression painting which is very dreamy-like, you might feel like you're having a dream when you're looking at it. So why does that happen? Well, in the brain, scientists believe that, some scientists believe that there's something called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are brain cells that fire both when you are acting and when you're observing some, someone else or something else acting in that way. And this was discovered in the 90s in the macaque monkey. Italian researchers were performing experiments with monkeys and, and they were training them to eat food a certain way or grab food a certain way. And they were monitoring the, the neural activity and they found that these monkeys were firing certain neurons when they were doing this activity. And then some of those neurons would fire when the other monkeys were doing it and they were observing. And they've been looking to see if this is the case in humans and most people's believe that it's the same with us as well. And these mirror neurons are probably involved with empathy, being able to take the perspective of others. It's also probably playing a significant role in the effect that anything visual has on us. Like when we're watching a movie and we see something sad, we feel sad. People cry during, while watching movies. They cry while, sometimes while looking at a scene depicted in art. But it's probably the mirror neurons that are putting ourselves into that situation. So this has that emotional effect, just like all things we observe have that emotional effect on us. The mirror neurons create the sensation that it's happening to us. Some researchers believe that this is involved in certain disorders like autism, that the mirror neurons either aren't developed or aren't communicating in the proper way and it affects certain aspects of uh, emotional functioning. When we're looking at a painting that we're inspired by or that we find beautiful, it's significant because the mirror neurons that are firing in your brain are likely the same neurons that were firing in the artist when creating it. Looking at more and more art actually creates new connections among your brain cells and intelligence isn't thought to be a bigger brain it's thought to be more communication among the cells in your brain 
So one way we could think, conceive of this is if we had a piano and the melodies are all there on the piano, but we don't hear them until they're played. So when you're looking at a piece of art, you're playing a new melody among the cells in your brain. And so new connections are developing and it changes your brain. And it leads to things like stress reduction, imagination, creativity, and what we think of as inspiration. So interestingly, from my experience with people that I know who are artists, most of them have consumed or perceived profound amounts of art. So is also the case with lots of famous creative people. I was just listening to a podcast about David Bowie the other day, and they were saying that he consumed just unimaginable amounts of theater and performing art. And maybe in perceiving so much visual art, he had so many mirror neurons firing that were firing in so many creative thinkers before him that he was able to come up with all of these characters and all these ideas like Ziggy Stardust and, and all of these incarnations of David Bowie. I think that if we want to find the ability to be more creative, to be more artistic, and also to just find more meaning and beauty in life, all we have to do is make a little bit of time to look at art. And it's going to stimulate centers in our brain that perhaps have never fired before or in that particular way. There probably is a difference in artists, musicians, painters, but I think there's also a difference with music, watching the music and like watching music being made and listening to music. Because when you're watching, that's what's going to create more of the mirror neurons to fire. Because it's the observation that puts you into that uh, state. So I think it might be different. In my own experience, I watched a lot of music, even, you know, even more so than studying music. I probably watched more music be created than I actually got into books and study and lessons and all that. I have almost no formal music music training. Taught myself some. I kept watching my father who played. And then when I got a little bit older, I started seeking out performance as much as possible. That was probably stimulating a lot of imagination in me and made me feel like I know how to do it even though I, you know, I didn't have all the training yet. But I think for the mirror neurons to fire, it has a lot to do with visual perception and observation. So color is one of the elements of visual art. And we see color as part of the uh, electromagnetic light spectrum. And the amount of that radiation that we can see, that light, light energy, is like the equivalent of one octave on a piano. What we can see as colors compared to the whole spectrum is, is about one octave. And other animals, can see more, can see more colors than we can. Because we have photoreceptor cells in our eyes called cones, they're in the back of the eye. And they receive light and they process the color from that light. And some animals have four or more. I think the creature with the most photo, types of uh, photoreceptors are a particular type of shrimp that has like 16. So if it could look at the rainbow, it would probably be like five times wider than what we see.
even an animal with just a little bit more ultraviolet perception will see like double the width of the rainbow. Just like how people who are colorblind or are missing one of these cones see a smaller version of the rainbow. Which is kind of fascinating to think uh, about color being part of the way light interacts with the world and brings that information to us. So one thing that I think it's important to realize is that when we're looking at anything, art or each other or the room, it isn't that light comes on and then we can see it. It's that light comes on and touches everything and encodes that information and brings it to your eyes. So what you're actually looking at are photons. You're actually looking at light. And inside of the light is the image. And that's converted in the eye, in the optic nerve, and processed in the brain. And a lot of what you see is based on memory, association, learning, which is why some scientists have done experiments with using colorblindness and creating scenarios where if an animal could only see black and white images its whole life, even if you put a red apple in front of it, it wouldn't see the red because it doesn't fit in with its memory and its association. It would take a lot of work for it to be able to see the red. Part of seeing color isn't just, that's the color. It has a lot to do with what the light is doing and also how your brain is interpreting the information that's contained in the light. This was kind of a, an important revelation to me that what you're seeing is not your eyes going to the object. It is the light going to the object and coming to your eyes. One of the reasons we still see things the same color, like a tree in the morning and the tree in the afternoon, even though it's different light and it is different color, is because cognitively we know it's supposed to be this color. If we had an extra photoreceptor, we would probably be able to see pink in the blue sky and maybe some other colors. It's thought that there are some humans with extra photoreceptors but they would be women because women have two X chromosomes. So there's an extra set of cones and sometimes those, that extra set in rare cases comes out to be a fourth uh, photoreceptor. So the, the colors that we have in our cones are red, green, and blue. And then there may be an extra one in, in some people. And so some scientists are searching for that. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the difference between perceiving art and creating art. Some, a lot of studies have been done to see are there similar benefits to perceiving art as there are to creating art? And the answer is yes, there are some benefits, but there's also some, some interesting differences. There's been studies where thousands of kids have gone to museums and researchers have studied their brains and also given them psychological assessments. And they found that for the most part, if children go to the museum for an hour, they return more socially aware, more tolerant, more creative, more intelligent, more open-minded, more peaceful, more emotionally aware. So there's just a, a tremendous amount of benefits just from going to museum. I don't think there's anything necessarily inherent in the museum. It's just that's where you can go to see uh, you know, a lot more works of art. But it would, I'm sure it would work similarly with looking at art on the computer or finding art in your own way. But there's one significant difference between perceiving art and creating art, and that is 
um, resilience, psychological resilience. In studies where groups of people make art and perceive art, they found that only in the group where they make art do they score higher on certain psychological assessments for resilience. You can fix your mistakes, and you, you, yeah, you make a lot of mistakes when making art, or so-called mistakes. When you're making art, your right and left hemispheres are interacting a lot more. And, you know, we, we have thought of it as like a right brain shift, but what may actually be happening is just like more communication among all of the centers in both hemispheres. That cross-communication helps people solve problems. And I think that's the main, the main skill that people develop from doing art. As opposed to mathematics, there's more than one way to do art you're sort of automatically forced to look at different ways of doing things. You have to make decisions about what you want to do with what's happening. And if you're like watercolor painting and immediately starting to drip all over the place and it's not going the way you thought it was going to go, you respond and you have to make decisions about it. So when you're making those decisions, you're building problem-solving skills and enhancing those centers in the brain. The mirror neurons with observing art is maybe getting a sense of what other people have done or how other people have created and feeling that inspiration from that. When you're making art, you're doing it and you're facing new challenges based on what's happening in the moment. And when you're making those decisions, you're creating new connections in the brain. And that's called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity means that when you do something or pay attention to something in a particular way, it creates new pathways in the brain and in some cases it actually grows new parts of the brain. And it's thought that the decline in brain structure isn't due to the death of brain cells, it's due to lack of communication. And this is one of the reasons why art helps with resilience because you're communicating more. And when you're communicating more, the, the cells stay active and they don't decline. It's sort of like if you don't use the, lang the other language that you learned, like French or Spanish, then you start to lose it. So when you create more connections and more communication among the centers in the brain, there's more psychological resilience and there's less age-related cortical decline, which means reduction in the structure of your brain. I do, for homework, encourage you to create something. And that could be painting, drawing, photographing, woodworking, gardening, anything at all that requires you to get your hands dirty to some extent and to see how it impacts the way you feel. What do you think is the resistance to doing this? Because I commonly hear, I don't want to do that. I hate that can't do it well, not good enough. So where does that come from? Tolstoy said that the idea that there's artists and not artists is the death of art. And I think in my personal experience, when I see like really small children, it seems like they're spontaneously and automatically creative with anything. And they don't need any special environment or anything to start using their imagination. And then it does seem like um, it's learned that to be self-conscious, it's sort of like a conditioning that happens when you start to experience uh, like s some social dramas when you get to school or when you encounter your, or interact more with your siblings. But it seems like, at least initially, it's a spontaneous event.
for most kids. And it's interesting because when we're adults trying to do that, we do have a lot of resistance. A lot of people have this resistance, or they'll say, adults will say, I'm not an artist. So it does kind of speak to what Tolstoy was saying, that the idea that there's artists means that everyone else won't do art. And that's a big problem for the society because it's not like the only benefit from art is if you could make a living doing it. We've already talked about all these emotional benefits and all these health benefits and how it activates certain centers of imagination and inspiration and psychological resilience. So there's a lot of value in that aside from money. But the idea that some people are professionals at it makes other people think it's not worth doing at all. And that's a cultural problem that I think we need to work on changing and to understand that art has a place. And art isn't just a profession. One of my wonderful teachers, one of my professors in cognitive science told me that art is a way of doing things. And I really love that definition of it because it means that it's not something reserved for a profession. When we're integrating head, hands, and heart, then we're being artistic. And we can do that with anything at any time. We can clean our house mechanically, or we can do it with a little bit of creativity and a little bit of love and gratitude and appreciation in our heart for the other people in our life or who we're serving by that act. We can fix something and we can do it mechanically just with our hands and go through the motions. Or we can use our intelligence to think about problem solving and how we can do this in an intelligent way. And we can also bring in our heart and then we're tapping into creativity and artistry. That can enhance people's life. If we get over this idea that it's not for me unless I can do it really well or be competitive, it's a strange thing that there's competition in art. I think it stems from the cultural perceptions of ranking things. You know, people want to rank everything in society and in the media. The best song, the best painting, and you have to compete to get appreciation for so many things in life that naturally we think of it in that way. But it's not like there can be too much art. In reality, there's probably way too little art. And if we could have more art, more community art, more art spaces, more murals, more designs everywhere, we would probably have more opportunity to tap into those mirror neurons, get inspiration, feel more harmonious, and it would probably contribute to a lot more peace in the community and in the society. So one of the things we can actually do to achieve this is look at something, think about something, and ask yourself, how would I do this if I was a child? What would I see if I was looking at this as a child? So sometimes we have to actually imagine that we are before all the cultural conditioning that has created the resistance to being creative, the fear of expressing ourselves, the fear of tapping into our subconscious. But there's a tremendous amount of benefit because I think ideas from our subconscious are trying to communicate with us. We have lots of lots going on in our subconscious with our memory and with what we've learned. But to bring it out into your conscious awareness requires experiences like art or meditation. But art and meditation have very similar effects on the brain. When you're painting or when you're looking at paintings, you are very focused on the details in your environment. And that is exactly what meditation is or mindfulness is. It's about paying attention in a deeper and particular way 
what's going on in the present moment. And ordinarily, we have, on average, like 60,000 thoughts a day. And 95% of the time, those are the same thoughts every day. And to get out of this, we have to have some kind of practice, a mindfulness practice or making time for art, because otherwise it's not going to happen just because we want it to. This is one of the reasons why some of the great artists were great artists. It's because they were so tormented by so many thoughts. And that was the only way they could make sense of those thoughts or slow it down or get into a flow. A lot of times, in my understanding and my limited research, that artists become truly great, it's because they're truly tormented by some type of condition and the art is their therapy. So a lot of times when we're thinking, I'm not talented, we can really start to interpret that differently. Well, I might not be suffering in that way, so I don't need to do it on that scale. But I can definitely benefit the same way you know, Van Gogh or Picasso benefited and made sense of what was going on in, in their emotional life. And I can do that to whatever extent is helpful to me. And I can benefit. I don't need to be to be a Picasso to be able to do it at all. And I can get some benefit. And that can enhance the rest of my life, the other areas of my life. It can make me more creative and um, inspired in business, in family, in relationships, in friendships, in, in all our different kinds of work. So that's the homework assignment to both make some time to look at some art, any kind of art, doesn't matter. Look, look up Monet and start there if you want. Or look at something in an art gallery or in a coffee house, any local art or contemporary art, and then make some time to make something, to challenge your, your resistance, whatever resistance you may have, and to challenge yourself to sit with that, to create, sit with whatever frustration comes up, and do anything at all, with oil or acrylic or watercolors or photography or woodworking, and then finishing works sense of accomplishment.